0: Welcome to What Were You Thinking?, where I speak to politicians, opinion formers and business leaders to find out about the things and experiences that have inspired them. You have undoubtedly heard of Nimco Alley, but if you haven't, it's a good thing you've tuned in. Nimco is a phenomenal campaigner, bringing the fight against FGM female genital mutilation every single day. Her story is a powerful one, and in this episode she shares her personal story of becoming a full-time activist What is needed to end FGM on an international scale, but also here at home? And what is it like sitting down with figures such as Jacob Rees-Mogg to discuss FGM and the relevant anatomy? The answer to that question will probably surprise you. This is one of the episodes supported by One. One is a global movement campaigning to end extreme poverty and preventable disease so that everyone everywhere can lead a life of dignity and opportunity. Whether lobbying political leaders in world capitals or running grassroots campaigns, ONE puts pressure on governments around the world, including here in the UK, to shape policy solutions and funding decisions that save and improve millions of lives, particularly in Africa, as well as empowering citizens to hold their governments to account. ONE's supporters are from every walk of life and from across the political spectrum and are crucial to this work. They are strictly nonpartisan, just like the Big Tent. And as the world grapples with a global pandemic, the One World campaign urges world leaders to ensure a truly global response and ensure that a vaccine, once available, is distributed equitably and prioritises those that need it most. A particular priority for One, which is pertinent to today's episode with Nimco, is the organisation's work on gender equality. Their Poverty is Sexist campaign has shone a spotlight on the barriers that hold girls and women back, especially in the world's poorest countries. And I'm pleased to say that this is one of several episodes that the One Campaign is supporting. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, the nonpartisan festival of politics, culture, technology, and fresh thinking. Nimke, what is it like trying to talk to politicians, many being stale and male, about FGM?
1: It's really interesting because I think in the last um, three to four years it's been really frustrating because I think a lot of it has um a lot of the political landscape has become a little bit more tribal but over the last um decades since i've been doing this it was actually quite easy and and actually the more male and white and stale they were the easier they were to shift in their narratives about something like fgm and i think you you'd probably think that's um that's not the case you think that more kind of um well traveled people on the left or people that had like you know worked in like the aid sector would be able to um understand more but those people are a little bit more entrenched in basically thinking that they know better but um the more removed um politicians have been from an issue like fgm the more they've been engaged by it that is really interesting yeah, it's just so that's why I mean, that's why I think a lot of the people that have been very um vocal and supportive and really like supportive without massive push have been very privileged white conservative men because for them it's just it's just a no brainer that this like there's somebody in front of them talking about something that is so barbaric that they assumed it being um kind of tarnished and put away with history and to hear somebody like me talking about that issue like fgm and talking about survival i think it's something that has really moved them and i and that's why i've actually like a lot of the people that i've done some great work have been very white male men
0: so one of the people that comes to mind is a sort of unexpected ally in some ways and that's jacob Rees-Mogg. um can you give us a glimpse into your first conversation with him about this topic
1: yeah well actually the first conversation about the topic of fgm it was with his sister um emma um carrie who is a writer and she was about to write a young people's novel about fgm so she came and had a conversation with me just to really and i think her protagonist in that article um, in that book was meant to be well it was a young Somali woman so she came to kind of talk to me about the experience of being young and Somali and I, being me, started making these kind of like random jokes about my weird um, crush which is someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg and she said oh that's my younger brother and I was like yeah I'm sure he is (laughs) and she was like no he was. and in that whole kind of broader comment so when I had but when I had a proper serious conversation with him about the about, about the issue of FGM, it was one of the things where he as also somebody who's very much against the 0.7% commitment in terms of the fact that it's uh, put down in legislation when other things are not ring fenced legally. It's one of the things that he would say, it's it's a no-brainer that we have to be able to spend aid in order to um to end FGM and then i did a recent event with him um just around i think it was like last year's international women's day and i said the numbers of um 200 million women or i said um the fact that 30 million girls are at risk between now and 2030 and for him it was it was like if you, like you know if a government was told that like you know a severe level of their population would be at risk of something like fgm then they would be able to that they would be forced to act and the key thing in that conversation that I had with him and it was just he and I just on a panel just talking about um FGM was 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 about the fact that he just saw the humanity um and 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 the human right violation of, of of um of what FGM was but then he also saw the economic impact of something like FGM has on a country so I think he's an incredibly thoughtful and intelligent man i like, you know, obviously we don't share the same views on, on, on things like access to contraception and everything else, but I think that's a personal and not a political kind of na- narrative that he has. But, I, I, like, you know, I will say that he has always been kind and considerate and really thoughtful about the issue and really understood the need to, in you know, order if we're going to end poverty, to really, like, you know, look at infrastructural change, look at really empowering women. And to him, like... So some of the things that we just say, it's like a no brainer, which I'm like, you know, I'm kind of, I'm not gobsmacked, but I am, I was taken aback at the beginning.
0: I mean, Nimco, it does sound like you still have a bit of a crush on him.
1: <laughs> it's, weirdly enough, I do, like, you know, I do, I do fancy men who had childhood trauma like I did. And I think going to Eton at the age of eight or nine, I think is a traumatic thing to happen to any child. <laughs> um, so it kind of helped. It kind of, I think it kind of develops that. but But I do actually think it's like there's a, um, like and everybody shares that picture of the Bulindan Cup with the current prime minister, the former prime minister, the former chancellor, and um, a few other men. And many of those are men actually that I have met and have all had a very powerful take on really joining um, the campaign to end FGM. So it's like, like, you know, our paths may have never crossed Um, unless it was for something like FGM which is really bizarre Mm. to actually kind of think that a lot of the most powerful men in the world and I um, the thing that we have in common is that they really do care and want to save girls from a horrific form of violence like FGM. Mm.
0: Well I think it's really interesting that you and very commendable that you sort of you know, you knock on these doors where most people wouldn't knock, and sort of probably assume that they won't be interested or engaged in the subject. And you found that the opposite is is true. Is that that's a really interesting narrative, I think.
1: Yeah, I've got more support from someone like Jacob than I have from someone like Sadiq Khan or um, Jake. Uh, what's his name, Jeremy Corbyn, and anybody actually on the left in the terms of the current political, the, the current Labour Party. I think I probably we might have done a little bit better had it been. Um, and the Tony Blair, but even then, I think there would have have to be a layer of explanation, and them wanting to really play a role in, because the whole thing is, I think it's emotion that gets um, the men within the Conservative Party, and they get it, and then they say, well, I don't, I've, I've never experienced FGM, I'm never going to know FGM, so, like, uh, you know, I take your word, and I, and I take the word of these women that are saying this, 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 this is what works. But um, men on the left, or on, like you know, closer to the centre, very much want to be able to understand that. so they want to have intellectual theory, um, like you know, a theoretical conversation about FGM, which I find really problematic and painful because then I'm trying to reason my humanity against their kind of understanding of culture and what culture means. Mm. Which gets a, which gets a bit boring. That's why I don't date anybody on the Guardian Soulmates. so when
0: did you decide you wanted to really take this activism forward and campaign on on this issue
1: um yeah i I think for me it was like in in terms of a public face i think it was like towards like you know within the first kind of year or two of the coalition government because i saw a real kind of change in the political narrative where I'd grown up in the new Labour, I'd kind of never really engaged directly in politics, my new politics um, was there. And I didn't really want to be, I, I never thought that almost a decade later, I would be here at the forefront, like, you know, leading FGM through the different um spheres of political um lobbying whether when it started off from a uk perspective to now a global level it was just this whole point of saying i know that the uk institutions can do better and ultimately it was a level of trying to appease the guilt that i felt that my silence was massively complicit to the misunderstanding of fqm i just wanted people to understand that they had a massive role to play in FGM and that girls are at risk of FGM now were as British as anybody else and our institutions had to protect them. So that being education, health and um, so on. Um, so yeah, it was, I, I, I think it was around 2012, 2013. And then it just kind of, then the more success we got the, and the more people kept on coming uh, you know, to me for quest- with questions and for answers, I just found myself like, you know, at at the heart of um, a wave of change, really. Mm. So it wasn't anything that I intended, and it's not anything that I even intend on a day-to-day basis when I wake up to say that I'm an activist and this is what I'm going to do. It's just like, you know, it's a path which I've gone on because of the experiences I've had and because of the privileges I've had in order to be able to articulate something which is really horrible and it can grip you and it takes a lot of courage and power to be to beyond the point of FGM and for me I think it's really unfair that we're constantly asking survivors to be the ones at the forefront and not only just leading the conversation but also giving so much and with so little support so I think I try harder and I work harder just so other women don't necessarily have to put themselves through a lot of the kind of rubbish I've had to go through in order to get to where we are
0: Mm. As a as a survivor yourself, I mean, when did you sort of realise the importance of what you'd gone through and what that means?
1: So I, like, you know, it's, it was because the whole point was like, I think that the physical pain is one thing. And for me, that was like, you know, that almost killed me um, twice. I could have died when I had my very invasive form of FGM at seven. And I could have died again when I had, the, like, I almost died so having to lead to the defibrillation when I was 11. Um, and I knew that that, the, that there was nothing that mitigated or really made this pain any sense. And I always say that my, my FGM happened out of context in the sense that there was a kind of party, but it wasn't celebrated to the point where my mother or my grandmother, who were um, complicit but also coerced into it through the patriarchy and everything else, were there, made it seem like this is something that I have to be proud of and something this is great i think i knew from their silence and the way that it was so confusing that it was that there was something like this was something super weird and then when i came back to the uk telling somebody who was as articulate and as caring as intelligent as my um teacher my, my primary school teacher and her not having any words of compassion for something which i knew was painful and i thought i'm expressing that it's painful and i'm confused as a child her having this very dismissive attitude made me realise, okay, this is really weird because there's so, like there's something that like there's something that's going on which like, you know, I just couldn't put my word, I couldn't put like, you know, into words. And then at the age of about 11, 12, I found um the hidden faces of Eve written by Noel Adesalawi And she articulated in that very well in a sense of it was a horrible thing. So there was, there was this grown woman who was um, back in Africa, now a doctor, a leading feminist, who I had no idea of any of those things. I literally had no idea who she was. I just read the book and this part just jumped out at me. Um, I think I initially read the book because the um, the librarian at the local library had said to me, oh, you might enjoy this book because it's written by an African woman. She isn't an African woman or a Muslim woman, but um, so I took her away with me, um, and that was like the first time I really understood that there was other people out there. And then, ironically, I ended up reading not, 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 like you know um, George Orwell's Nineteen Eighty-Four after that, and kind of like you know said to myself that are just some of us that just think differently. But mm. never in my kind of child brain that I think this was um, a form of violence that had gripped. Like you know, um and kind of torn women's lives apart for almost four thousand years. I just thought it's this really weird thing that this woman has also written about. I just put it to the back of my mind. I just thought, like, I had my defibrillation, um, like I was just going to be like any other normal British girl, and that is how I carried on until I was about twenty-one, twenty-two. And then what? And then I finished university and I was at this feminist network. And again, I actually hadn't put my experience of FGM into the context of, um, of violence against women and girls because, again, I just thought like that is kind of different. In, um, and, and this woman um, this woman said to me, oh, would you be able to come to a local school because I've got some Somali young girls and, and they seem to be very disengaged in terms of the fact that you're very... Like you're you at a feminist network. You're more kind of like I think it was just a narrative of oh you're all oh, you're very Western for Somali, and at that time what had happened was that there were there had been um it was I think it was around two thousand and four five um around that time and and there had been a massive influx of Somalis from Europe because of the freedom movement. A lot of people came to live in the uk with their families and they're able to kind of have like you know sisters raise their kids together and a lot of these girls were dutch or swedish and because because of their skin tone and they're not speaking english as their first language everybody just again allied them as refugees even though most of them were born in europe so there was this whole conversation of like oh these girls need to have the support of a western person and i just went into this my like, classroom in in bristol thinking i'm going to speak to some um young inner city girls who seemed to be actually a lot more together in terms of the way that they were acting than i had been at 14 13 i like for me like the fgm happened the dean happened the search for questions didn't like you know like outside of noel Salawi, i really couldn't connect my physical body to what my emotions were so i was being i was gripped by an eating disorder in my teens so these girls just had were really like loud and confident and i was a little bit intimidated by them and then and and then basically one of them asked like um miss is like fgm halal and I was like, "What would you guys know about FGM?" Being very flippant to them, thinking it's 2005. What, what? How many of you have even heard of FGM? And in a very kind of unforgivable way, I asked a direct question, which I think has kind of haunted me and still haunts me to this day. Where I said, "Like, how many of you have had FGM?" And out of 14 girls, 13 of them had. And I will never forget one of the girls, the girl who hadn't had FGM. She was just incredibly Sweet girl with headscarf and a, like you know a gap in her top tees, like looked like staring at me and staring at her friends. And then one of her friends was like, oh, "I don't think you're special because like I know what's gonna happen to you this summer in um, in Hergesa which is the city of my birth." Um, and then she was so explicit about like FGM. It reminded me of like how explicit I was as a seven year old to my teacher, and I. And I just said that. I just thought, no, 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 that's not going to happen to you. This is fine. And then the teacher walks back into the class because at that time there was only me and the Somali girls, and they all just mm-hmm. kind of just like flipped and like nothing was going on. And I just thought, this is literally what I did as well. You you end up kind of masking your emotions and living a double life. Yeah. So that was kind of my first inkling into I wanted to do something, but never did I want to talk about my experience of FGM because I thought, like, I'm not a, like I'm not poor. I'm not like um, I don't want to be seen as an immigrant with like you know a mutilated vagina, all those things. Um so I I would always talk about it in a third in, in, in the third person until about like so that was about for like another almost like eight, nine years, I always talked about FGM in 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 the third person. And it's really bizarre because I met Noelle Adeslawi in 2014 um, at WOW, the Women of the World Festival. And I always wanted to ask her a conversation about her mum and her and how they rebuilt their relationship. Because she says in her book, um, like you know, I she basically fights herself. Um, fights her way out of the hands of this woman that had mutilated her. Looks for her mom and then sees her mom in the corner, like you know, in conversation, just like as though nothing is happening. And I and I kind mm-hmm. of sensed a level of betrayal in that. So I really wanted um her to tell me like how her and her mom re- re- rebuilt their relationships because my mom and I were having this incredibly hard time um at that time because I was very vocal and very public about i was kind of leading the FGM campaign at the time um but she kept on talking in her in this interview um she kept on saying she'd written that essay about her FGM four times and she ripped it up and thrown the third edit of it into the like you know into the ocean um because she just like you know she just couldn't like you know didn't want to like you know give it out to the world and then I remember changing the question I had since I was 11 12 um 20 like almost 20 years later saying to me, like what was it that like you know why did you not want to um like you know write this thing about your FGM experience and she said I was a doctor I was a feminist I was I was a political activist I didn't want to be reduced down to and just a mutilated vagina. And and I really felt that because that was one of the reasons why I never talked about my FGM for a long time because I'm just thinking, like, why are these? Why do you always constantly have to have this, like, like story of us still being broken when you can be beyond your mm-hmm. FGM? So yeah, so that was I, anyway, That's a roundabout way of saying it was like it was those girls that really, um, kind of opened my eyes to how my silence was complicit, and then meeting other young women who'd undergone FGM who was so broken by it. I just thought they literally don't know that there's somebody else um, in this room that has had the same experience as they have.
0: Yeah. And what what reactions do you did you get, especially in the early days? I mean, you've kind of already alluded that it's sort of caused problems between you and your mother and possibly wider family. I don't know, but what, you know, is there was there hostility or are people's you know quietly supportive?
1: It was so basically the way that I ended up turning towards um, conservative um, like leaders or politicians was because I was so rejected by um, my political home, which had always been Labour before that. Um, so I started to say, okay, fine, because but by the time we'd started um, Daughters of Eve. Um, I had like you know found my <clears throat> I found my feminist voice I would was, this wasn't an African issue this was an issue specifically about British girls and how we protect British girls and I was talking about those things so I would literally go to um women's organizations and these and a lot of the women's sector is very white working class women who've worked their way up and very labor that's like that's their traditional kind of heartland in terms of um in terms of the like the politics and and the way and the way it always was so i would go in there and within that like you know white working class women there was also um like you know african-caribbean women and there was this whole conversation about intersectionality like what was actually the, the word intersectionality wasn't being used in um 2010 2011 it was um it was more about diversity and all these other kind of conversations and i would say but FGM is not a cultural thing like there's no ignorance in FGM it's actually an organized crime it's violence against women and girls and people are like you can't say that because it was as though it was the, as as though women of color specifically african women from a migrant background couldn't like you know did not possess the level of um, like the patriarchy did not work in the same way as though, like you know, brown men could not also organize just like any other male system had organized in order to, like you know, systematically oppress and abuse women. And I can articulate that now. But that time, I was just thinking, like, how can you not see that? Like, FGM is the same as rape. FGM is the same as domestic violence. There's a, there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a gender lens to this. And that was like really interesting getting that pushback. And I was just thinking, like, are you actually kidding me? And then I ended up um, finding myself, like, writing to Boris Johnson, who was, again, like, you know, just about, like, you know, just to go for the, like, you know, was was the mayor of um, London at the time. And him saying, oh, bloody hell, of course. It's like, it was literally, it was like bloody hell. was like, the, it was as simple as, like, of course it's violence against women and girls. Of course it's um, a gender thing that we have to target. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, I'm actually not crazy because when people that you respected and were in the field of violence against women and girls would um would say, oh, it's not like, you know, it's not that it's different. We have to listen to communities. And honestly, if I hear another person tell me we have to talk to communities about FGM, it will just like, it will drive me insane. Because like even in 20, like even in 2020, people will still, and it's actually quite racist to say that brown people are not intelligent enough to understand that, like pinning their children down to the ground and cutting them. It's actually a crime in the United Kingdom. Mm. I was like, I was talking to a, um, I was talking to a Somali guy the other day. He was like, I don't know why you want to criminalise FGM. You have to be able to talk to communities. Like they don't understand. I said, uh, Do you drive? And he said yes. I said, Have you ever got a parking ticket? And he said, Well, no. I said, Well, if you can, un-, I said, if you can understand the basics of driving in this country if somali people can get their kids to school if somali kids can get their kids vaccinated in this country or even can collect benefits they i think they bloody understand that fgm is illegal i it's not it's not brain science so it's um it's one of those things where i just i find that i find the the well-meaning white white people on the left who always like but they just don't understand i'm like they understand, and you you are playing into their hands by saying they don't understand. Because, in terms of plain ignorance, it means they can get they, they can get away with it. And it ultimately also really like it's offensive, and it like you know it dehumanizes like young children in this country that we think that their parents are so ignorant that they don't understand when they're screaming. That what well, even if well if they didn't understand, then they shouldn't be having kids. Anyway, it's, it's my main thing. But yeah, it's just it's so I've. I find that really problematic and i think a lot of um a lot of that was one of the like one of the things that i wasn't expecting i was definitely expecting the pushback from my family because obviously it's something that i should not talk about because it's so sensitive and about a specific area of my body um but i was definitely not expecting a lot of the um feminist thought leaders as they were at the time to Mm -hmm. come at me as hard as they did and hard they came Mm. how they came that was it's kind of funny it's kind of funny sometimes when you kind of look back at it but it's just like it's also like I don't even know how I don't even know why and how I did it
0: Mm. um I'm sure you you still get I mean quite a bit of abuse on Twitter I'd imagine is that is that a big big thing on social media
1: it well do you know what it's like what, what what's really interesting is like how people will use fgm for their political e- or, or or like you know ego stuff so i've deleted twitter off my app, um the twitter uh, the twitter kind of app from my phone because there's this like really interesting um, guardian story assuming that pretty patel is some cold-hearted um like person that doesn't care about fgm knows nothing about it and will deport a young girl to um to sudan where she'll be subjected to fgm and that's all pretty's fault and i i ignored this um thing but then he just kept on going he kept on going and people just kept on tagging me and i was thinking like one do you not think i know about this case two do you think that i would actually put any political allegiance i have with any politician above the humanity and the ability to protect the girl from fgm no i wouldn't and three none of you actually cared about fgm two days ago you don't and 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 you don't care about fgm now you just care about scoring political points so in the way that i engage in the conversations that i have i always have to try to see what what people's um kind of motives are and sometimes it's fine like you know certain people want to get involved with fgm because they want to get political leverage but then they deliver then as long as they're, they're delivering something but i just think it's like there's there's a there's a um a concerted effort to constantly misunderstand and misrepresent everything that I say and everything that I stand for because I'm an unapologetic, like, young black woman who just says, like, you know, we need to do better for other young black women. It doesn't matter who my friends are and what I, um, how I even voted when nobody even asks how I vote. But I think that's, so that's been very, um, that's been very problematic. And I think that's the same thing that I felt within the development sector is that. A lot of people, like today, there was an announcement that there's um, $2 being cut from the aid budget. And I was like, don't look at African women and say, oh, this is going to be bad for African women because none of that money gets to us in the first place. So, yeah, there is a, I don't know, I think everybody just, I think a lot of people get freaked out by somebody like me who has gone through what I've gone through, but, but, but then says what I say because they just expect me to be waiting to be rescued. So I find that a lot of people that would have I would have went to university with or would have aligned with like 10 years ago, and I are definitely not on the same spectrum at the moment.
0: Policy-wise, what needs to happen in the UK? Uh, let's start with the UK to tackle the problem.
1: So I think the UK is doing some incredible work and I think that the, the 2020 census will, will show that there is a massive reduction in the number of UK-born or UK citizen women who've had FGM. Um, I think one of the, the key lacking thing is, and I, and you know what, times have changed and this is one of the things, is like once you start giving women the ability to make real fundamental choices, so a lot of the women who are having children and who've had FGM are women like me who spent like, you know, either 90 percent or 100 percent of their adult life in the west and in and in like you know in in the uk in this case so they are very much against fgm and they very much have the choices to be able to work marry who they want to marry and make these like real decisions but also with with the, with the support of a country that actually now has um like you know taken care of these girls and actually understands these girls as being british i think what is the reality is and what we haven't done is that we've haven't acknowledged that there are like you know committed twisted individuals who will fundamentally always believe that fgm is a thing that they want to carry out in and uh, that want to carry out and that needs like like specific policing so I, I think we needed to move fgm away from the home office and really put it in into communities and um education and that means the fact that fgm is not a across uk issue there are pockets of people who are gonna carry out FGM so it is race specific, it's culture specific and w- what you can do is really start to support local authorities that have large number of um, women from FGM affected communities and you can directly do that we have a centralized ed- um, like you know information and education system where you know if a woman that has had FGM gives birth to a baby, and it's a girl. Then you support that woman up to the age of five, and at least that child. And then you can actually do a risk assessment of that. So I, I, mm-hmm. I wish we would be a little bit more confident in doing something like that because at the moment it's like it was like, oh, we don't want to be um, like saying that just because you, you, you've had FGM, then you're going to do FGM. That's not what you're saying. What you're saying is, if you've had FGM, then you're more likely, like that child, is more likely to be exposed to FGM and then if that, if that child is not cut and she gets like you know she gets to the age of like 16 17, 18 then in the next generation there uh, there is no need in order to have those um, conversations mm. with um with, with 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 the next generation of girls it's a, we, 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 we do this for domestic violence we do this for things like if if a woman is vegan and exclusively breastfeeding there's a more um Focused uh, kind of um, support for her because the baby could get rickets if they if, if it doesn't get enough iron. We like you know we immunize with the BCG so for tuberculosis and so on specific communities. So we already have um, a system in in the healthcare of this country that looks at different ethnic minority communities and their health needs to a certain extent in order for public health. And this is a public health conversation that we're preventing. Um, things like that so I do really wish that there would be more um kind of targeted interventions from um a state level rather than just like leaving it to training in schools and training for local police when it gets to the police officer it's too late. I think yeah. it's better when it's like uh, when we're at like the health is at the angle with the whole point of like and 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 the local council really putting conversations out there so. I I hope that's something that um, both communities and health can work together and then hand over to education. I just mm. and I think the I think the Home Secretary agrees with the fact that like you know it shouldn't be like FGM should not sit with the Home Secretary. It's an issue like any other issue that the Home Secretary should police and have a and have a oversight on. But like we should be more focused on prevention and changing cultural narratives and really helping to lift girls out of those communities rather than just like leaving it till um till a horrific case it like you know means that a girl has undergone FGM yeah
0: so which department would you prefer to have final responsibility
1: I think I think it's local community I think it's like you know it's um, the communities departments because they can then work with local authorities and they know where, where the hotspot is so health will provide the, the data of how many women are in those areas that have undergone FGM um education can have the social work kind of angle on that um but 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 like you know local authorities will definitely be be the one that they they're the ones that need the funding and they, and and being able to deliver things because because you've got like hotspots you've got you've got like southwark in london you've got probably um Lewisham, east london like harrow and all these places so you can kind of localize that and then you've got birmingham bristol sheffield wherever so you don't need an overarching u k policy where like you know we're having FGM training sessions or pilots in Devon. like that's not how it works there's no um there's no kind of data to support that so i think it's like we have to be smart we have to be able to use the technology that we have in order to protect women and girls
0: and what reactions have you had to these policy suggestions
1: it was really interesting like people will say oh that's really interesting um but like you know from a from a a senior level from the uk government level but i just haven't had time to um push it through but then what's happened is again when i say about that, like you know that that vermin, that like you know, very keen um thing to misinterpret what I say. People, I just like said oh, Nimco Ali wants to put all Somali women on like you know, register so they can be seen as child abusers. I'm like, actually, it's a protection thing. It's basically supporting you because like, trust me, after you have a baby, it's it's a hard time, and if you've had FGM, you're gonna have a massive hard time, and it's gonna be. A psychological impact that we i want you to have better support i want to be able to i want healthcare. care i think to be able to deliver for you so i the labor party and labor ironically all these places where where fgm is super high or labor run as well there is not one conservative run borough which has a massive uptake of fgm mm. which you can take that as you want but they're not interested in really engaging because if they start to um, care about girls and really shift the narratives of those communities, then they might start to lose votes. They might actually find women and girls that are emancipated enough to vote Lib Dem or whatever it is.
0: And from a sort of central government perspective, has the response been
1: positive on, on these suggestions? Yeah, it has. It has. It's just, I've, I've just basically, because of COVID, just I had to spend more time focusing mm. on international um, stuff. And I think that's like, where the main kind of systematic change needs needs to happen, I think we're in an opportunity now where we can, like you know, not be ashamed of the concept of um, global Britain and really putting forward the um, narratives of like you know justice, human rights, democracy in places where um, FGM is is prevalent. So for me, I'm really hopeful for the idea of actually. Um, like us shifting the way that we um, use our 0.7% to, all, to, 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 to really strengthen the ability to set up um, countries and communities that are prosperous as opposed to keeping this aid industry going. I think I'm yeah. going to get a lot of pushback from that. that that'll be because, again, there's, there's, there's a lot of vocal people within the civil service who don't want the aid budget to be um, spent differently. And then ironically, the people that want it to be spent differently who are here in the UK don't necessarily, um, are not aligned with me politically and other stuff. So you would probably get somebody from the from more of the right in terms of the Conservative Party. like Someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg would be um, someone who's very critical of the aid budget. But then at the same time, I'm thinking I would rather we spend aid effectively rather than defend something that is not doing anything and that's like I'm sure like somebody that's worked in the sector you've seen how hard it is to kind of shift shift those narratives from within.
0: Yeah, these things take time, definitely. Definitely.
1: It takes courage as well, so I think.
0: Yeah, courage and leadership. I mean on a sort of international context, what role would you like to see the Foreign Office take in all of this? Do you think there's a there's a role for them?
1: Yeah, it is because I think I think diplomacy is the key thing. So what we can do is that if we want, um, if we want to be able to reach, to achieve the sustainable development goals, if we actually want to be able to protect the United Kingdom. So for me, it's like what are the key kind of aims of any country, um, and it's for, and it's for that country to be able to be successful and for that country to be able to be um, safe and play a key role in a in a world which is delivering for its most vulnerable. And I think the Foreign Office can do that to kind of change the fact that the history of the United Kingdom um, has like, you know, and as, and as basically as the head of the Commonwealth as well. It's the fact that in order for Commonwealth countries and other countries to really succeed, um, we have to be able to invest in things like democracy. And I think, I think we forget that, um, that democracy is the fundamental key to um, ensuring that there, there is real prosperity and peace. I think that's what everybody's fighting for. So many of the countries that are at war at the moment, or like you know, all the kind of um, ways that they've fallen, are not democracies. And we've spent the last Mm. two decades allowing China to take over somewhere. So I'm massively passionate about Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. So we spent China, um, like you know, spent the last two decades allowing China just to run crazy with its own, ironically, with its own foreign policy, its own foreign policy, its China supremacy. It's like so. If global Britain is a bad thing, it's actually not as bad as, um, uh, like you know, a supreme and stronger China with the narratives of communism and, like you know, anti women, anti human rights, all those things. So if we can counter that with the the, the largest, one of the largest democracies and one of the oldest democracies, the United Kingdom saying that we're here to put in funds and support infrastructure that allows democracy to happen. think that is something that's like super exciting but you'll have people that will say to me oh but what about access to contraception i think so this is the thing that i i find really problematic i have never encountered anybody in the developing country that said to me that the first thing that they want is access to contraception like the whole point is the, the reason why we're providing contraception why we're providing abortion why we're providing these things is that these women don't have the ability to decide who they marry, when they marry or what they do with their bodies. So therefore us as like, you know, so-called developed people are thinking, oh, fine, we'll we'll give you the pill or we'll we'll give you an abortion. I'm pro-choice, I'm pro those things, but I would rather those women be able to vote for leaders that would give them access, like, you know, to healthcare, which like, you know, which contraception and abortions are part of in their own country, in their own language, when they demand it, how they demand it. So you have this narrative of assuming that we're doing good for the world because we've, like, you know, carried out like, you know, 3,000, um, what is it called? Like, um, um, 3,000 births, like, what is it? One of those um, UDIs, whatever they're called, contraception. So we've given women, we've given 3,000 women access to contraception. Now they can decide when to have children. I'm like, well, no, because you're still probably going to get raped and she's then she's probably going to get hiv and then she's probably going to um die and then her kids are not going to have anybody to look after them so what have we in our ability to be world leaders in aid and doing these things to really achieve for african women i think very little and i can and i'm and i'm coming also to that fact of um i think i can be very critical about the un as well and its kind of this concept of like 70 years of the un i'm pointing to what have you actually like given to the world i definitely believe in the need for better vaccines and for lobbying for um, better vaccines and better healthcare um to the world health departments but beyond that i you can't like i always find it quite like you know it's it, it's an oxymoron um to say we're un peacekeepers i'm like you have to you have to take a position in a war even if it's a civil war because what you're doing is that you're just like creating more chaos when there's like a third person in the whole kind of conversation so Mm -hmm. yeah I think we as a western um g7 leader need to get over ourselves a little bit and stop thinking like stop feeling guilty about history and actually start feeling bad about how bad we are in the way that we're doing things because we still feel guilty about 300 years ago (laughs) that's like that's my thing it's like it's not helping like your guilt and your ability to feel bad about um like you know empire is actually not doing any good for the women of liberia sierra leone somalia everywhere so that's a that's a privilege that i really want a lot of um very well-meaning white people to get over I understand yeah but that's, that's my little new rant of people
0: i like that that is that is a powerful statement um is there a an individual and and a place that have particularly impacted your life and and your your journey on campaigning against FGM?
1: Yeah, I think so. Basically, the individual is my grandmother because I think every generation pushes a little bit further for um, women and girls. And I think mm. had my grandmother or even my mother been as vocal and as kind of, I some people would say of other people like my mother would say reckless as i have in terms of saying what i have to power and to people and to men specifically they probably would have been dead so what my grandmother had like you know as a woman who was even though my 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 grandfather was an incredible man he still like you know they still got married very young so they were both well she was she was a child and um, when she was given to him he didn't they, they didn't consummate the marriage till she was um 18 because he refused to marry um a girl but it's like to have a grandmother that was like before she got married like illiterate had fgm and was basically like her family couldn't feed her so they were like oh we're gonna have to m- marry you after a richer man to mm-hmm. to have somebody like that who still was like one of the wisest people i think that that's what you find on the continent of africa and and across the world is like it's women who had to be resilient because they had no other choice. I really want to get rid of the narrative that African women are some kind of superheroes. They are incredible women who've had to endure inhumanity that no one should ever have to endure. But I think a lot of that is because they've had to survive for their next generation rather than surviving because they have some kind of superhuman power. Mm. And that that that's another narrative that I really, um, really want to quash is this this like you know um, image or narrative of the powerful black woman who can survive everything it's like when you don't have a choice you will survive like you know hunger war like as I said like you know incredible in 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 humanities but they shouldn't have to um do that and they shouldn't have to like you know show their like like actually just like have to justify their humanity and justify the 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 fact that they deserve kindness and I think somebody like my my grandmother that survived a lot of things but still was not bitter which is kind of um similar to one of the things that I respect Mandela about. There's always people saying mm-hmm. to me like I, I was once asked like who do you respect and I said um in terms of like um the ability to not hold grudges or the ability to walk away from something it yeah. was like it was Nancy Mandela for not looking back of like, oh my God, I've almost spent almost 30 years of my life in prison. And in, like, you know, I'm just, he just moved forward mm. and like, like, you know, ended up building a nation. And another person that I also weirdly respect um, is Dr. Dre, who I actually tweeted about today because he wears a new pair of trailers every day. And I'm like, that's, just, that's just not okay. <laughs> but he walked away from two, like, so he was with, um, he was with Defro Records and he walked away from almost like a billion pound industry to say, I this is not working for me and I don't really like I don't really get where you're going and they cut him off and he basically went and made another like made another billion pound industry. So I think the idea of not saying, Oh my god, I had a billion, like look what like you know, look what I have now or even when you make another billion saying, no, Oh I, could. I could I could have had two at the moment. I think I, I I really respect anybody that can do that. And I think my grandmother, um, God rest her soul, had a lot of like horrible things happen to her, but she never lost the ability to have faith in humanity. And I think like you know, and now I've got a niece that basically flips out if she doesn't get the like you know, the toast the way that she wants. And I sometimes I look at that and I just think. Because your grandmother pushed forward, you can be a brat. So I think that's like... I think she's was basically um, someone that um, has kind of taught me a lot. And I hope that I can, like, you know, replicate, like you know, like a minimum, like, you know, a bit of her humility and humanity. I think in terms of um, places, Burkina Fasta was the first place I went back to as an adult to Africa after leaving when I was seven. And that was such a humbling experience in the sense that there there wasn't so you so we're, we're always like very, very much seen like you know massive scales of poverty and inequality in Africa because you've got like the extreme rich and the extreme poor and specifically in East Africa, so both Kenya and Ethiopia, because of the aid industry, their capitals are just basically run by you have massive wealth or you have. Um, Massive inequality and poverty, but Burkina Faso was one of the places that was like, like everything was like, like it was like you you couldn't tell who was poor and who was, and there was like you know just this level of like equality that I hadn't um, seen before. Mm. And I remember meeting the gender minister at the time um in Burkina Faso, and it was really it was really fascinating because like I was with. A white aid worker. We were doing a scoping exercise of FGM because it's it's not like African women had told us what was going on anyway. And she said, "Oh, can we speak to some survivors?" And and I remember it was the gen- it was a gender minister and the first lady. And the first lady looked at this person and said, "What do you mean survivor?" She's like, "Survivors of FGM." And she said, "Listen, each and every one of them in this room is a survivor of FGM because those that haven't survived are dead. So." Mm. that was like it was a really it was a really powerful moment um mm. of this african woman shutting somebody down and then she's and then and, and then i ended up having the conversation with um the, the gender minister about the conversation about, about the psyche of women in terms of fgm and the idea of like belonging so sometimes you carry something on even because it's horrible because of this sense of like But what if, like you know, it's a bit like when people say like the Earth is flat, and people say, "But no, it's round." It's like if we were going to set off, then what? what Then what would that look like? And I had like I had one of the most that that was one of the most fascinating conversations I ever had in my life, and it was my first time going to Africa as an adult, and I will always have a fond memory of um, Burkina Faso and. Mm very West African French way of calling out the rubbish that a lot of the aid workers were coming in I just honestly it was it was it was it was brilliant I just I just sat there I just laughed to myself because it was quite funny that a lot of these aid workers had been used to um like Kenya so Nairobi and Ethiopia Addis, and they were just being called out in Burkina Faso saying like what the hell are you talking about like this is how we go so yeah I, I love Burkina <laughs> Faso
0: and what about an object? Is there like a a book or or something that's that's really um that's really stuck with you?
1: Yeah. So um Kathleen Moran, actually, so Kathleen Moran was the first ever kind of person on the left who's still on the left who's and also and has always been an incredible champion of the work that I've done. And I so her book How to Be a Woman is one that I was reading in around like 2012, um, and it was a really horrible time. And then I think like 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 mid 2013, her and I ended up being on this list of like in, in 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 the Observer of women to watch, and I screamed and I tweeted. I was like, I can't believe I'm on the same um, list as Kathleen Moran, and she's like, "Hun, I think you're a hero. I've been watching what you do." And she, I wish amazing. I'm not surprised, by the way. I'm not surprised. Yeah, she's just, like she's so incredible, and one of the things is like I love what she says because she has a level of freedom that i can only ever wish like you know that i have in terms of talking about sex sexuality being a woman without um i know she will i know she, like you know there are a lot of people that come at her and say a lot of things but she doesn't have to fear that like you know if she talked about her orgasm or tweeted about an orgasm that she had at the weekend because as you do as, as i would if i could um she wouldn't like get a death threat or a fatwa. And I just thought I just like like Callie Moran's ability to be that relatable is something that I wish I, I'm I'm able to say publicly one day. So she's kind of she's she's kind of my icon and her book, How to Be a Woman, it's just like it's incredible. But also she was she was fat like me, she has an eating disorder. I was incredibly fat as a teenager. Like um, one of the things that she puts in there is um, she just she would eat um, like cheese with a fork, just like put a massive lump of cheese with a fork. She like you know, and I was like, I can relate to that. You don't want to eat it, but you seem, you're, you're seeming to fill like you know um, a massive hole that you emotionally that you just can't fill. So yeah, I think mm. I think Catelyn is a hero. She's a, she's a feminist icon.
0: Well, so are you, Nimke So are you. Um, and wow. you've you've um, uh, written a book yourself. Uh, what we're told not to talk about, and um, it, it is a collection of stories of women from around the world. What was that like um, collecting those, and what were sort
1: of the highlights and uh, from 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 that experience? I think that was to you know what it's it, it was basically just to teach us that we we are all like we all have experiences and we all are kind of as women there's this concept of like shame is i think the most in like the most infectious disease there's a pandemic with that and we have to be we have to um challenge that and in my and and in my language there's this thing called which basically means no shame like do you have no shame like why are you talking about that and it's really interesting. Like there are the things I'm meant to be embarrassed about are things that I had no control over, like so FGM, like pleasure of sexual all those things, or so things that are either meant to be good for me or bad for me that I shouldn't talk. Like so, it is this way of really controlling and silencing women. So like, it was really powerful to be able to talk to women who um, had similar experiences to I but were from a different kind of. Um, um, place um mm-hmm. to 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 where our different cultures different things but what was really interesting that i found in that was that i all women struggle with this relationship with their mum. i think it's like this ideal thing of and also and, and that's sometimes because we are like you know lumping women together so we're doing this whole thing of like youth and like like not really um like you know cherishing and empowering the ability to grow old as a privilege and something to enjoy in terms of our grandmothers and everything else so it's just been like it's that was that was really interesting and that kind of made me really realize actually speaking to other women who were having issues with their mums or mums were having issues with their daughters made me really realize how incredible my mum was and how I actually needed to step back and see her as a human being i think like mm-hmm. i think that's the greatest gift that i've ever been able to have is to get over the fact that just because she's my mom she has to be perfect and that's something obviously the patriarchy mm-hmm. um puts on you so it's like so she is like she is just like as flawed as anybody else and she has the she has the right to make mistakes and also um we shouldn't. I can. We shouldn't expect perfection from. I, I don't expect perfection. Perfection from any other human beings apart from our mothers and also women when they become leaders. So as soon as a woman becomes a president or a prime minister, she has to fix everything that's going on in, in that country. Even though men have been able to lead for decades without even doing two percent of what she's being demanded to do. So I think there's that kind of. Um, Level of seeing women as super powerful again is quite problematic. Women are great at a lot of things, and women given the opportunity will deliver. But I think, like, the idea that oh, just because you're a woman, so you need to basically fix everything that we've messed up over the last sometimes even like you know, a millennium it's I think it's just kind of crazy. And we do that to motherhood all the time. I said that somebody that's been. During lockdown, thinking about the idea of um, motherhood and, and 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 growing up, because my grandfather said to me once, "Um, you don't actually become an adult until you don't have anybody to call mom and dad." Like I think that's a mm. a space when you really see your vulnerability and your humanity when you are basically the last one of the like you know you're you're last of the line. You are the yeah. grown up that everybody comes to. So I think that is that that has kind of got me thinking in in terms of becoming a mother what would I be like and I don't think actually I could have ever been as strong as she has but yeah at the same time I was demanding perfection from a woman who had me at 20 and had to um deal with civil war and everything else by, by, by the time she was 29 yeah here I am throwing a tantrum about like you know my feelings which are valid I don't want to say anybody that you don't like you know that you don't I don't want to tell women out there that they don't have like you know um the right to have like you know to demand their feelings to be validated but ultimately I just think we have to give other women a break yeah which is another new motto I've got
0: (laughs) For anyone who is listening and wants to get more actively involved and help the fight against FGM, what can they do?
1: Um, that's, so basically last year, we um, I co-founded an organization called the Fife Foundation, which is the global partnership to end FGM. But what we really want to do is just shift the narrative of w- what it takes to end FGM. And w- what it takes to end FGM is the economic empowerment of women and, like, COVID has very much proven our um, theory that like you know, once you fund women locally, things will be sustainable. But what I really would love, anybody that, that's listening to this and anybody that's like wants to create a more equal world, especially as we're talking about um, both COVID and Black Lives Matter, is to really deconstruct our aid industry really deconstruct how we work in solidarity. So working in solidarity with developing countries, as opposed to working in this way of, we wanna rescue, we wanna be able to build, we wanna be able to kind of mold um, countries into our vision. And it was like Africa, for me, I'm passionate about Africa. Africa as a continent, its future is in its women. Africa's female future is key to that. Ending FGM is key to that. So please join us at the Five Foundation. I'm please like, really support the narrative that putting money in in the hands of women is the only way that we're going to be able to change things so creating a financial um system um within within the within an international community that invests that invests in women which is not what what we have at the moment which is very colonial ironically the most the most colonial thing that people want to like you know people should be focusing on is aid. it's not statues it's not um it's not names on buildings it's this idea that um white people can turn up on the cont- on continents away from europe and be the ones that tell them how to do things differently like honestly china's doing it in a different way china's building an empire through just pumping money and giving it to dictators we're doing it in a way of just like building these incredibly white castles in like major cities like Nairobi and Addis Ababa and then assuming that we're helping the world we have to do things differently and we have the opportunity to do that if we want to save this world that we live on it's it's gonna have to start with like really giving women in um, Africa and South America the ability to have economic power so they can become the breadwinners and they can really evolve the same way as we have in the West that means Fewer children being born, like you know, fewer diseases, more animals being saved, and it was quite interesting that I saw somebody doing a thing the other day about um, aligning pensions to the Sustainable Development Goals
0: and mm, make my money matter campaign.
1: Yeah, which I agree with to a certain extent, mm. but again, it was a bunch of white people, and the most important thing to them was animals and trees. I was like, mm. like, if I'm hungry, I'm going to cut down that tree and eat the elephant because you're not helping me at all so the idea the fact that we think that saving wildlife means we have to tell white people or people in the West that we um, I keep using it because, because I don't feel like you know I don't I don't feel um, like you know sensitive or problematic about saying the word white people or Western people because it's not a negative in the sense that we are all completely different we have massive different roles to play but the idea that, that you that, that that we don't see the way to protect like you know like animals like you know the endangered species of this country the the um the ecosystem all these things is by investing in women and by investing in like you know women at local levels specifically in africa then it's just like it's it's completely like i just i just i just just can't fathom how you think like you know saying oh we're going to invest our money into protected elephants i'm like how Um, how are you going to do that oh we're going to set up a national park i'm like well if i'm hungry i'm going to take a risk and break into that national park it's like it's so i think make my money matter it's a it's a it's a massive narrative but the only way to, to to make your money matter and to make this world better is by investing in human beings then stopping um the the refugees from climate change and all these other things Mm. so i think like hopefully i've I've got a lot of love and respect for um both richard and emma and i really hope that we can work together on this in in terms of shifting the narrative of saying actually putting that money in in the hands of women and girls is the way that we are going to make this world better Mm. yeah that's why that's my thing is like I, I, i had like an incredible conversation with um with somebody who runs a, one of the leading foundations for a bank in Africa, and he was like, "This is a no-brainer," and he was an African guy, and I was like, "So excited! I'm like, this is what it's about." Mm. But again, he was a West African um, French-speaking person, so I think no, I think I think they might be the way forward. West West Africa, French-speaking West Africans are the way forward. <laughs> that's, just, that's just a random that's just a random thing I'm putting out there, but yeah, <laughs> no, That's good. So, I
0: like to finish off the every interview with a round of quick fire questions. So, uh, the first one is What's the thing that annoys you the most about politics and politicians in the UK?
1: What really um, annoys me about politicians and politics is tribalism and people trying to score points rather than make a point. 100%. Don't like the whole point? Yeah. Yeah. That's my thing. Yeah. I don't care who you are, if you've got a point, make it, stop scoring points.
0: I love that. That is mine as well. That is my top top bugbear. Um who is your favourite politician?
1: Um, who is my favourite politician? Um it's so I have a I have a few I I really like Zach Goldsmith or Lord Goldsmith of Richmond Park, <laughs> as he's now as he's now known. Now he's elevated. Um yeah, he's animated. But you know what? I really like at the moment. I really, really like Pretty, like since I've got to know her. Because do you know what I like about Pretty Patel is that she's she's got the level of confidence that I want my daughters to have. And it's just like, and she gets so much thrown at her, but like, and I and I'm sure, like, you know, I know personally that it probably does get to her, but she does like have just this, this level of like, I'm just going to prove you wrong, and a lot of the reasons like there are a lot of white men who say worse things than she does but they don't get as much or even like even men on the left who are brown or whatever there's a lot of men let's just say there's, there's a lot of men in politics on both sides that have said a million things that are worse than anything that Pretty Patel has ever said but she, they never get but, she, but they never get as much like even 50% of the stuff that she gets so um yeah my favorite politician like you know i sorry zach but i think pretty is my favorite <laughs> i love her i do actually I, I just really i really like her i just i just i want i want that level of confidence for all young women
0: and if there was one thing you could say to the prime minister of, without any consequences what would it be
1: Without any con- so i want I, I want there to be a consequence i want him to give me um millions um for women in africa so we can like you know i can i can show him that like you know that we can make things happen so if i i would i would like you know i know like you know that boris is a man that believes in women's equality and specifically um empowering girls education saving them from FTM, all those things i really just want him to just like i I want him to lead in africa i want i want the united kingdom to lead in africa i think that's like i think we should not be ashamed to say that we are a country that cares and we like you know as the head of the commonwealth we have a massive um like you know commonality with many of those countries in africa um so yeah i would just love for the prime minister to just basically become a new champion for africa
0: and what advice would you give to girls growing up around the world?
1: Um, we're working hard for you. And like I think I, yeah, I just I think we're I, I think I think we're working hard and I hope we don't let you down. But the but the reality is that this world is unequal, but there is nothing out there that you can't do. I just and I think I just really want girls to know that it's that they are the world's most untapped natural resource and again so i want girls want to know that yeah, they are the world's most uh, like you know untapped natural resource and i want them to believe that i want them to know that they can lead countries communities and also they can also just what if 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 they want to be mothers and caregivers that's also an incredible thing to do so they can do that so just like just be true to themselves and like you know we all evolve we all take our time to do things differently but the fact that like you know each each and every one of them is loved and respected that's wonderful thank you so much no thank you for having me
0: if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and leave a review i would massively appreciate your support if you have any questions for nimco get in touch on twitter and also let me know your thoughts i'd love to hear them i'm at laura round And if you're looking for more content, make sure to become a friend of Big Tent to join their digital events for only £6 a month. Thanks for listening.